Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 82 and God's judgment of judges. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful that your word is true, that it is without error, and that it was without the possibility of error, that it is clear, that it is sufficient, that it is binding on our very lives. And so, Lord, as we look at this chapter today, there is so much here for us in the world in which we live in. This post-fall world where it seems that that governments are, are destroying people and even our cities and our governments are, are doing all sorts of unjust things. And Lord, we're reminded though that there is a king who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns and, and who establishes our very lives, who orders them, and who even orders our world so much, Lord, that you appoint leaders. Even, even sometimes there are ungodly leaders, leaders that, that dishonor you, that spit in your face, and yet, Lord, they, they do not rule without your knowledge. They do not rule without, without you seeing what they're doing. And Lord, you will hold them to account because you are a God of justice. You are a God of righteousness. You are a God of holiness. And so while it seems that our world is going to uh, the trash bin, Lord, you are reigning, you are ruling, you are ordering all things because you are the God, Titus 1-2 says, who never lies. So Lord, as we look at, at Psalm 82, I prayed today that we would, be, we would be comforted with the knowledge of your sovereign power and might, that you are a God who, who orders all things and who works all things, who says that he is the I am God. And so we can trust you. You are sufficient. You are enough in and of yourself. So Lord, help us to take a word like this and may it calm our hearts. May it steady our gaze on the one who is in and of himself sufficient for us, for our salvation, for our life, for our godliness, our Lord and our King and our Master, Jesus Christ. But Lord, where, where we rebel, where we speak unjustly, even where we speak sinfully against our government, Lord, may you convict us, may you confront us through a, a passage like this, showing that we, we must pray for our government officials. So Lord, help us, help us to exercise wisdom as we navigate this uh, chapter. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Help us to, to, to have our focus on that kingdom that you are see, where you are presently seated as our king, as our high priest and our intercessor. But Lord, help us also to care and to love for our fellow man, our, our neighbor, and, and for the well-being and the good of the cities and the countries in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. 
Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Hear what the Word of God has to say to us today. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Now, it's vitally important in the world in which we live in today for Christians to understand the role of the civil government and the Christian's relationship to the state. A number of New Testament passages make important points on this topic. And on one occasion, the Pharisees, they sought to trip up Jesus by asking whether the people should pay taxes to Caesar. Their idea was either to get Jesus in trouble with the people by endorsing the Romans or to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans by opposing taxes. Now, Jesus, who mastered every situation he was in, simply asked for the coin used to pay the tax. And so when a denarius was brought to him, Jesus asked in Matthew 22, 20 through 21, whose likeness and inscription is this? They answered that it was Caesar's. And so Jesus stated, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His point was is that Christians have obligation both to God and to their appointed government rulers. And not only does scripture acknowledge the legitimacy of secular rulers, it also states that God establishes them. Jesus made this point to Pontius Pilate when the Roman governor asked in John 19.10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and, to, and authority to crucify you? And now Jesus' answer highlighted the priority of divine authority over human rule in John 19.11, which says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And now, not only does the Bible acknowledge civil rule and place it under God's higher authority, but an episode in the book of Acts, it reveals that when the rules of man directly violate the word of God, they are not to be obeyed at all. And the situation was the hauling of Peter and John before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which forbade them from continuing to preach about Jesus. And so Peter makes it clear that the apostles would not obey the Jewish rulers in Acts 4, 19-20, which says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, the principle that human authority is both established and judged by God is the point and the message of this psalm. The psalm begins with God taking his seat in the presence of earthly rulers in verse 1, which says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. O. Palmer Robertson summarizes this psalm when he says, God is the ultimate judge. He will bring under the scrutiny of his judgmental review all decisions of human beings who judge. John Calvin says this, that the potents of this world may not arrogate to themselves more than belongs to them. The prophet here erects a throne for God, from which he judged them all, and 
represses their pride, a thing which is highly necessary. So as you can see, this psalm is eminently relevant, as is the whole word of God, but especially in a time like ours, when many people are concerned about governmental overreach and more. And we'll get to that in good time here today. But first, what we're going to see is God's appointment of earthly rulers. And the first question in understanding Psalm 82 is to identify those referred to as the gods in verse 1 of our text. Now, according to a number of scholars today, this idea, it refers to the kind of spiritual principalities and powers that Paul mentions in Ephesians. The idea to them is that the divine counsel of verse 1, it involves God's holding court with angelic rulers given authority over different parts of the world. The situation is compared to Job 1.6, where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, this language is similar to that of Psalm 82, which in verse 6 refers to its hearers as God's sons of the Most High. In Job 1.1, the assembly is a gathering of angelic leaders since Satan also came among them. And so scholars argue that Psalm 82, it depicts a similar gathering in which God holds court with the angelic powers, both good and evil, during which the Lord stands up to accuse the unjust. It is pointed out that the Old Testament occasionally uses the word Elohim, which normally refers to God the Creator to speak of his angelic representatives. Now, Daniel 10 speaks of both good and evil angels who have authority over nations, and under this view, Psalm 82 involves a gathering of these divine powers. Even advocates of this position assert that this best accounts for the ironic mood of Psalm 82.7, which says, Like men you shall die, and this fall like any prince. And yet, there are a lot of reasons, and we can't get into them all today, to doubt this type of interpretation. For one thing, it's hard to see how God would place the weak and the fatherless in verse 3 of our text into the hands of evil spiritual powers and expect them to receive any justice. Well, another problem is verse 7 speaks of these rulers dying, which doesn't seem possible for angelic beings. Most telling is the fact that the psalm was quoted by none other than our master and King Jesus Christ in one of his disputes with the religious authorities, specifically with reference to the gods in verses 1 and 6. In John 10, Jesus had identified God as his own father, prompting the religious leaders to threaten him with stoning. And yet Jesus says in John 10, 34, Is not it written in your law, I said, you are God's. This was a direct reference to Psalm 82. In John 10, 35-36, Jesus said, If you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? His point was that the Bible itself refers to human leaders as gods who exercise authority from God and by God. And so since the Bible itself sanctions the use of this word for men, why would the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of all people for having the word apply to him? And so for our purposes, Jesus' interpretation clarifies that Psalm 82 is referring to human leaders who are placed as judges and even civil magistrates to govern the people of God. But how can the name gods and sons of the Most High be given to mere humans? 
Well, the answer is, is that judges and even magistrates rule on behalf of God so that his name is upon them in the fulfillment of their duties. William Plummer writes, they were invested with the character, uh, with the character of representatives of God. And so in this way, the human rulers are as gods to the people who are required to give honor and obedience to them. Paul taught this principle in Romans 13, 1 through 5. When he said, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, one must be in subjection to them. And so, since human rulers derive their authority from God and stand in God's place with respect to those under them, the divine stamp on their authority is reflected by referring to them as godlike in terms of their office. This perspective is seen in the charge given by King Jehoshaphat to the rulers that he appointed in 2 Chronicles 19.6 when he said, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but from the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. And God also has a commission to earthly leaders. So since human rulers receive their authority from God, it is God's commission that defines their duties. We see this in verses 3 through 4 of our text today, where God sets out his expectations when he says, Give justice to the weak and fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This charge is not meant to describe the only duties of civil leaders. It is also the sum of their calling. William Plummer says, The might and the majority can protect themselves. The feeble and the minority need the defense of good laws and good rulers. And so the rule of justice in society is the protection of the weak and oppressed. And good rulers should have an eye, especially on the care of the destitute. Michael Wilcock writes, The cause of the weak and the rights of the poor are dear to the heart of God and should be to theirs also. Francis of France was a godly king who was greatly loved for his honest rule. On one occasion, a woman knelt before him pleading for justice. The king caused her to rise and stand, saying, Woman, is it justice that I owe thee, and justice thou shalt have? If thou beg anything of me, let it be mercy." His point was that justice is the duty of kings and judges to provide. Unlike mercy, which must be begged, justice should be taken as a divinely given right. Psalm 82 urges that just and impartial government will protect the weak and honor the Lord God. Now, God's commission in Psalm 82, it shows one way in which free market capitalism differs from the biblical view of wealth and society. Christians often bemoan high taxes, but we should not resent governmental efforts directed towards caring for the poor and the needy. The problem with many government programs for poverty and even social need is that they do not often offer more long-term... Let me say that again. The problem with many government programs for poverty and even social need is that they often do more long-term harm than good. Now, Christians may well oppose wrong-headed social schemes, but we should be at the forefront of those who are earnestly concerned for the needy and should even urge our political leaders to take steps to alleviate affliction, even if sacrifices are needed on our part. Now, since human rulers receive their authority from God and even exercise a commission that he has given— It is also and only appropriate that they should also acknowledge God in their public work. 
and pray to him for guidance, for help. Human rulers need the their spiritual fruit of wisdom, of courage, of faithfulness, and love, all of which God provides through faith in the person and work of Christ. Civil leaders should especially pay attention to the word of God to ensure that they are even serving their divine sovereign appropriately. George Washington wrote in his prayer journal, Let my heart, therefore, be gracious God, be so affected with the glory and majesty of thine honor, that I may not do my own works, but wait on thee. This very attitude was prescribed by the statutes for the kings of Israel. And when a new king ascended to the throne, he was commanded in Deuteronomy 17, 18-20, to write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The founding fathers of the United States of America expressed this attitude by having public officials sworn into office by placing their hand on the Bible and making oaths in the presence of God. And at the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia, uh, Benjamin Franklin emphasized the importance of this point made by Psalm 82. And rising to speak, he appealed to the role played by reverence for God in the winning of independence and urged a continual need for the same when he said the following long quote. He began saying, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence. To that kind providence, we owe this opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And we have now forgotten this powerful friend. Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived for a long time, 81 years, he says, and the longer I have lived, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I thereby beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to be officiating in that service, he says. Now next, let's talk about God's accusation against unjust rulers. It is a tragedy of recent years in America that Franklin's wisdom has been neglected and even forgotten. The same problem occurred in Israel under the successors of King David, and especially in the rebellious northern kingdom in Israel. Because of this failure to submit to divine authority, the rulers are brought under accusation in Psalm 82. The basic charge is given in verse 2 of, of this psalm. When he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
And before we look at this specific charge, the most important fact is the judgment of God. God is the ruler of rulers and the judge of the judges, just as Christ is hailed in Revelation 19.16, King of kings and Lord of lords. Charles Spurgeon writes that human judges are gods to other men, but he is God to them. They must take care that they do not misuse the power entrusted to them, for the judge of judges is in session among them. The principle holds true not only for presidents, congressmen, senators, and judges, but also for fathers who exercise God's authority over wives and children, pastors and elders in ruling the church, and business leaders who exercise authority over those in their employment. Especially those who have become used to exercising earthly authority need most the warning of the, that this chapter is giving. It is common for human rulers to believe that authority is at their sole disposal and for their purposes. This was a mistake of the despotic kings of Europe who upheld their reigns on the principle of divine right. Psalm 82 warns of such rulers to humble themselves before God and be faithful in performing justice. Samuel Rufifer pointed to Psalm 82 in his historically influential study of biblical authority and rule, Lex Rex. He noted the, the, the duty of lower judges and officials to oppose higher rulers such as kings and presidents and if they descended into violent tyranny. Rutherford's argument provided the rationale for righteous rebellions such as the American Revolution since he urged that lower officials uh, owe their loyalty to God before the king and that they are responsible to God to protect the weak from tyranny. Now, the psalmist's specific charge is that Israel's rulers judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked in verse 2. The people were left in desperate straits because the rulers and even the judges appointed to provide them with justice they're exercising their powers for evil. Micah 3.2 condemns such evil rulers, saying, You hate the good and love the evil, who, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Now, from the context of this psalm, it seems that people were being made destitute by greedy power brokers and that the judges were in their pocket. The oppressed looked on their civil leaders for support, but found them conspiring with the wicked. Where our English version reads that they show partiality to the wicked, the Hebrew text employs an idiom saying, they lift the face of the wicked. Now, the idea is that of unrighteous acquittal and the upholding of an unjust cause. These judges, these rulers who are appointed as God's protectors of the weak and the vulnerable have instead given their blessing to the evil wolves who are ravaging the sheep. Now, the Lord condemns not only what judges do, false judges do, I should say, but also what they become in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. Now, by means of the corrupting influence of power, they have lost the ability to discern right from wrong. There is a warp in the judgment so that they have lost touch with the ability to discern right from wrong. There is a warp in their judgment so that they have lost touch with obvious moral obligations. And don't we see this today in government support of those who rake in millions by the slaughter of unborn children and the harmful advocacy of sexual promiscuity, gender confusion, and sex trafficking. There is not the slightest doubt that the moral status of these issues, but in the swelter of pulls, political contributions, power politics, the rulers and their political con consultants have lost the knowledge and understanding of what is good, true, and wholesome as to find in the Word of God. 
and so they walk about in darkness. Their ignorance is accompanied by ineptitude and moral chaos. The consequence is upheaval and ruin. Verse 5 says, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And here the Bible gives an accurate description of Western society and its, its current collapse. The advocates of what is misnamed the progressive cause are unfazed by the reality that children are no longer safe outdoors, families are in chaos, schools are ineffective, and civil virtues are in radical decline. David Dixon writes, When justice and judgment seats are corrupted and judges do not mind justice in their place, then the pillars of that land or kingdom must stagger and all matters go to room or a perilous alteration, he says. Let's look at God's judgment on unjust rulers. You see, God is angered by the, the injustice and the corruption of rulers who were established by him to bring blessing rather than bane. The severity of his judgment reflects the trust that has been betrayed and the significance to God of our faithfulness in our public duties. God threatened punishment is laced with holy scorn in verses 6 through 7. I said, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And though rulers and judges are like gods to men, God is yet their God, and his severe judgment reflects his holy perfection. No matter how high a man may be raised in life, he is not so high that God cannot cast him down in a moment. However, even the most exalted of the world are just men. They will all be claimed by the grave and stand before the final judgment of God. August Th Thuluk thus wrote, Death, which levels all men, is the most effective sermon for earthly rulers. High office and even worldly power offer no protection against disease and corruption. And in many cases, earthly power provokes poor health as much as it invites a violent death. The one assailant who can never be stopped is the King of Kings and the Lord God. When the time comes for his judgment to strike the lords of the earth. And it's for this reason that many of the highest in rank often suffer the most grievous of falls and the most shameful of ends. For the same God who exalted them for his service alone abases them in judgment. Thomas Hall writes, Most of the seizures fell by the hand of the people. If you, like the tyrants in sin, expect to be like them in punishment, God thus declares in verse 7, Like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And where are you men? Like men you shall die. The Hebrew text literally reads, Like Adam you will die. The name Adam is the same word for, as that for man. So this may be taken as a reference either to our first parent or to people generally. At, at, at the very least, the verse reminds us of the example of our first father who took upon himself to sin against God while acting as covenant head for the entire human race. The result was death for him and for all of his descendants. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and after that to come to judgment. So remembering Adam's fall and our own accountability to God should compel every sinner to come to the foot of the cross of Christ, there to confess their sin and gave forgiveness and new life through his blood in the resurrection of Christ. Now, because God is the final judge and the only infallibly faithful Savior, King, and Lord, Christians should appeal to him against unjust rulers. And so the psalm concludes with an appeal for God to step forward and put his judgment into action. Verse 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, when, when God's people are afflicted, we, we can always turn to him. We can always know that he is both willing to appeal to and protect and provide for his people. 
Matthew Henry says, There is a righteous God to whom we may have recourse and on whom we depend for the effectual relief of all that we find ourselves agreed by unjust judges. Now the language of verse 8 of this psalm, it evokes the promise of Psalm 2, which informs us that it is the Messiah who inherit the nations. There God says to his son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession in verse 8. According to the New Testament, Psalm 2 was fulfilled in the resurrection of the crucified Jesus Christ from the grave. And so Psalm 2 declares, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul explains in Romans 1.4 that this public declaration of Christ's sonship took place at the resurrection when he says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now with this connection in mind, we see that the, even the Eastern Orthodox Church showed good judgment when it placed Psalm 82.8 in the liturgy of the church for the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. After a scripture reading concerning Christ's resurrection, the choir chants, Like a call to the sleeping Christ, Arise, O Lord, judge the earth, for thou shalt have an inheritance among all the nations. The resurrection of Christ is the assurance that the plea of Psalm 82 will be answered, that the unjust rulers of the earth will be cast down, and that our appeal to heaven for aid will be answered. As Mary sang concerning the birth of her child in Luke 1, 51-52, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now lastly, let's talk about our judgment in Christ. It is in light of Psalm 82.8's plea for God to intervene and judge that we should best connect Psalm 82 back to John 10, where it's referenced by none other than our King Jesus. He has revealed himself in word and deed as a true Messiah, the very Son of God and the Savior of the world. The unjust rulers replied in unbelieving violence, threatening to put Jesus to death. And yet Jesus appealed to Psalm 82's description of earthly rulers as gods and sons of the Most High. And so if this language can be used of civil magistrates who serve in the name of God, how much more can it be said of God's true Son to whom the eternal sovereignty of all the world has been committed to? And since the final judgment will be made by Jesus Christ on the last day when he returns, the most important judgment that each of us can make now concerns our response to him. Jesus said, I am the Son of God, that is, the true Savior, consecrated by the Father and sent into the world for our redemption in John 10, 36. And when each of us stands before his throne on the day when Psalm 82 is fully realized, that day of judgment, what will matter most is how we have responded to our King. Will you be unjust toward Jesus by denying his claim as Messiah? Well, if so, Psalm 82, verse 7's warning is given to you. Like men, you shall die. But if you will humbly bow before Jesus, submitting the judgment of your faith to him for salvation, then the final plea of this psalm will bring your redemption. Psalm 82, 8 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a great psalm that we have looked at today. Uh, there, is, there is so much that is happening in our world in light of just looking at this psalm. Lord, I, I just pray that we would even take a, a few moments after hearing this sermon, maybe even longer, thinking about our world, thinking about your justice, thinking about how under your providence you are ordering all things for the good of your people. 
whom you love, whom you bought at the cost of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And how even you are, you are using all the events of our lives for, for your honor and for your glory. You, are, you even turn around, Genesis 50, 20 says, what was meant for evil. The, the Proverbs clearly say that the heart of the kings, the heart of the kings are, are deep waters. They're, they're in your hands. They're in your sovereign hands, the hands of God. So Lord, help us. Help us to be comforted by this truth that there is not one blade of grass that is beyond the knowledge of God. There is not one hair on our heads that you don't know. You know the motivation of our hearts. You know, Lord, what, how we get anxious about the news and how it promotes, and even we get discouraged by the news. And yet we need the reminder. We need the encouragement. We need the instruction, Lord, that you are in control, that you are the ruler. You are a just ruler. You are a king. And in your sovereign power, you work all things for good. And you even turn around the, the judgment of unjust rulers. And you, and you use even their unjustness to display your might and your power. Lord, help us, to, help us as your people to speak out against injustice. Help us, Lord, to call our, even our officials, our, 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 our local officials, our state officials, our, our, our senators, our, our congressmen, where, wherever we may be. Help us to call them to repentance and faith and to the biblical standard that you have set and that you have called for. Lord, help us, help us where we've been apathetic in, in our civil responsibilities as citizens of this kingdom, but even, of a, even in a greater way of a kingdom that has no end, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to not be apathetic to the kingdom of Christ, but also to, to our civil responsibilities. Help us, forgive us, Lord, where, where we have been apathetic to either. And help us, Lord, to speak the truth and love both to power and to one another in the church. Help us, help us, Lord, to stand on your word alone. And help us to point people to Christ, without which there is no hope. And Lord, what we need today in the world in which we live, people need hope. They need a Savior. They need a King who has come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for sinners. And Lord, that is the hope that you have given. That is the hope that we have. That is the promise that is in Christ alone who came and died. And you even say that in Luke 19.10, you say that you came to seek and to save that one lost. In John 10, you tell us that you leave the 99 and you go after the one lost sheep. And so, Lord, even today, as we've considered this psalm, help us to be reminded, help us to be comforted, but also confront us, Lord, through your word, by your spirit. Help us to repent of our apathy. Help us to speak up courageously and boldly like of men of old, men, men and women of old. Even if it may cost us our life, help us to speak up for the honor of your name, for the good of your church, and for the good of your people, that disciples may be made, and your honor may be praised throughout all the nations. We thank you, Lord, for men and women who have done this throughout the history of your church, who have given their lives for, for your honor, for your glory, and you have used their lives you have used the blood of the martyrs as Tertullian played to be the seed of the church. So we thank you, Lord, that you are building a church, the church, 
and that the gates of hell, as you said, will not prevail against it. But help us, Lord, as the church, to stand up, to stand on your word, to stand by your word, to be shaped by your word, to be molded by your word, to declare your word, not only to lost sinners, but to government officials, to all the high and the mighty, to the lowly. Help us to defend the cause of the, the poor and the widow and the orphan by declaring your great glory and majesty of your grace in the person and work of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for this psalm. Thank you for the many ways in which you used it in the life of your church to help the church. We thank you that you are a God who sees, who knows, and who cares because of Christ. So help us, Lord, to look to Christ where we, where we have fallen, where we, where we have failed, where we have erred, where we have sinned. Lord, we, we turn now in confession and repentance, casting ourselves, as 1 John 1, 9 says, on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to live, help us to have our help us to have our lives grounded and shaped by your word. Help us to speak out because of the grace of God that is that has so transformed and is even now transforming our lives until that great day when we stand before your face, before the judge of all the earth, and be declared in his sight, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. May that be our prayer, our plea from and from this moment on until we stand before your face in jesus name i pray amen and amen thank you for listening to the servants of grace podcast today if you enjoyed the show please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.